And it's the West Coast Mennonite Choir that start off the music this morning with Let a Song Go Round the Earth. Mennonite Choir and the song was Let a Song Go Round the Earth. But let's go over to David to see what Malcolm Geit has for us this morning. Malcolm Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear his thoughts on Psalm number 3. It's followed by Polyphony singing Dieton by Morton Lauritsen, conducted by Stephen Layton with the piano being played by Morton Lauritsen himself. 
response to Psalm 3, Domine quid multiplicati, that you may find your peace in his good will, call out to him and tell him all your fear, for he will hear you from his holy hill. He knows how many ills, both far and near, oppress your soul, and how they multiply these obstacles and problems. How you veer from one side to the other, from one lie to yet another, till there's nothing true. Just let it go for now. Don't even try. Lie down and rest. Let him look after you. And in the morning, when you rise again, then let him lift your head and change your view. Replenish, renovate you, and sustain his long, slow blessings in your growing soul till troubles cease and only joys remain.
Gout was followed by polyphony singing Directon, or it is said, or perhaps more colloquially so they say, it's based on one of a collection of poems taking inspiration from roses. But let's get back to David. There is a podcast about the Bible called The Outspoken Bible. If you Google Podbean, you can find it. The host is Fiona Stewart, and she talks to Jen Robertson of the Scottish Bible Society and Neil Glover, who's Minister of Aberfeldy Church. This week, they talk about creation. I think for, for me, the, the story above all, and it's probably the most famous reading of Genesis 1 that there's ever been, is uh, the Apollo 8 programme. Where um, so what the context is that we're in the space race. We're in the 1960s. What's happened is 1959. The Russians have put Sputnik into space, and uh, the Americans are suddenly going, "Oh no, there is a Russian satellite flying over us. We need to catch up." So John F. Kennedy then says, um, beginning in the 1960s, by the end of this decade, we will have put a man on the moon. And all the engineers are going, oh my goodness, how are we going to manage that? So what they do is they start the Apollo program, well, they start the Gemini program and various other programs, but they start the Apollo program, which is going to be the one which is going to put people on the moon. And that has a disastrous start. Apollo 1, there's a big fire and uh, the astronauts are killed. So they suddenly have to have this program, which is jumping forward at huge leaps every time. So the next flight, I think, after Apollo 1 is Apollo 7, where they eventually get some men on an Apollo rocket into space but suddenly it's uh, coming to the end of 1968 there's only 12 months left they are having to get to the moon before the end of the decade and they are taking huge leaps so Apollo 8 is this massive leap where not only are they going to put uh, astronauts on a Saturn rocket an Apollo mission around the earth they're going to have to fly this thing mm-hmm. all the way to the moon which is thousands of miles farther than anyone has ever gone before and more than that they're going to have to detach a bit of the rocket um, where, uh, which is called the command module and they're going to send that in an orbit around the moon so no one's ever done anything like this before and so the Apollo 8 sent, sets off um, and uh, the astronauts head off and they do the f- they see what's called Earthrise, really, really famous photo of the Earth appearing over the horizon of the moon. And that, that photo, which sees us like a ball hanging in the middle of space, many people think has was responsible for starting the modern environmental movement. But these astronauts are asked to make a broadcast and uh, their names are Borman, Lovell and Anders. And they're thinking, what are we going to broadcast here? And eventually they decide that the thing that they are going to broadcast to the whole of, well, it's not just the Americans because somehow Mm. this has brought people together Mm. and the whole planet is listening and they read Genesis chapter 1. begin to say, and God looked out the, the, the oceans. You can see this on YouTube, you can see the, the, the planet, I think it's the moon going underneath this really grainy black and white photograph, and God created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that it was good. And
And the way that they read the word good, even miles away, it was terrible setup. It was loads of interference, good. And then they, they close out by saying, and we close from the crew of the Apollo 8, close with good night. Good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. So that that was the and but for me that also embodies what's it like to speak these words and feel the power of them. Yeah, and there's something interesting. I think even as you were telling that story, thinking about the the unity Mm -hmm. that comes. Now I I know it's not directly connected to the words being spoken, but there is something about the piece of unity as people um, gather together and 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 the power of the words spoken over that, Uh, which gives me hope in the in the current climate crisis actually yeah and, I, and it encourages yeah. me as a christian actually to to, to i guess bring my jesus perspective yeah. to that not in that haranguing way you were talking mm-hmm. about but but what does it look like to, to be the person who speaks yeah. those words that bring unity that bring peace that bring because uh, I, I think if you're hope. nagging someone to do something the reason you nag is because there's always a little bit of fear in the background mm-hmm. that you're scared that they're not going to pay any attention to you yeah. mm-hmm. whereas if you have a confidence that this is God's mm-hmm. world and God will will allow us to work with God to look after it mm-hmm. then you can be a bit more confident I think about how God's going to hold on and, to it and that's the great thing about doing the Bible 2020 app because it gives you that perspective each day yeah. Yeah. of how God sees things and how you know, we, we, we'll never get the full picture of how God sees things, but it mm. changes how, how we see things. And, and not just each day, but each night. Yeah, um, yes. So yeah. one yeah. of the things that comes often quite often in these passages, and Job 9, and I think in one of the Psalms, I think in Isaiah 40, God puts this, mm. the stars. And I think one of the things that these passages are encouraging you to do is to make the connection between the creation that you see and the text that you read. I was just trying to find the verse that talks about he also made the stars. Genesis well, 1. Kind of an, an, an afterthought. It's just like an afterthought, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He yeah, makes the sun, the moon, and also the yeah, stars. Yeah, exactly. He's yeah. just like, wow, this is extraordinary. Just, isn't a, it? just a few of them. Yeah, this and it kind of lifts us, lifts us up, doesn't it? And he'll bother it and friends there. And that came from a podcast in the Outspoken Bible series, courtesy of the Scottish Bible Society. And we'll continue on the theme of creation with Christine Getty and Creation Sings.
night and we'll have just a touch of burns with the help of Alistair MacDonald. A couple of tunes later on plus this one Alistair has some thoughts centred around the Selkirk Grace Some Hay Meet From my armchair window on the swallows before my eyes appearing for breakfasts, dinners, teas, and in between meals, fairin' some hate and can eat, some would eat that wanted, but we hate and we can eat, and say the Lord be thanked. From my armchair window. 
world I see butter mountains rising And fish thrown back into the sea And leaders compromising And then I see one bowl of rice A child's eyes staring at me With feeble bones life never owned Reaching out to touch me Some hate and can eat Some would eat that wanted But we hate and we can eat And say the Lord be thanked Just down the road A million miles Our children they are crying To eat, to eat They've got no meat And spend their living dying But the old divisions Oh, this world Exist because we let them The choice is ours Tween need and greed To help or just forget them Some hate and can eat Some would eat that wanted But we hate and we can eat And say the Lord be thanked And say the Lord be Alison MacDonald with some thoughts based around the Selkirk Grace. And later on, Alice will have a couple of Scottish tunes for well-known hymns. But meantime, let's get back to David. Mike Brearley is one of the most successful cricket captains of all time, winning 17 tests for England and losing only four. Mike has taken up a career as a psychoanalyst since retiring from cricket, Talking to Michael Barclay, he compares family life to captaining a cricket team. You were 34 um, when actually you did play for England. That's when some cricketers are beginning to think about retiring, isn't yes. it? Yes, I, I sometimes think of myself as a late developer. In fact, I said that once to my analyst and with a certain pride, and he said, when are you thinking of starting to develop, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. Well, I think in a way, as an analyst, you'd probably agree we're always developing. We, I do. And one of the great things about being an analyst is that one's always learning and always rethinking and thinking anew. And, uh, you know, it is a fascinating life. You met your wife, Barna, around this time uh, when you were touring with England in India in the winter of 1976 to 77. And she's from Gujarat. She's from Gujarat, from Ahmedabad, and uh, until COVID-19, in the last few years, I've been uh, working in a slightly different way and taking a bit of a sabbatical each winter for two and a half months or so, and we've gone there. And so I'm missing, I'm going to miss that this winter, because we can't travel there. You have two... Um, children, yes. you and Mana, and grandchildren yes. now as well. So family life is not unlike teamwork in some ways, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think a good team is like a, a good family. It's not all sort of placid <laughs> or calm. You know, it's lively. It's got 
arguments, it's got differences, but they're tolerated uh, more or less, you know, and they don't get too nasty or too persistent. It is like a team because you have to develop each person individually, has to find their own way and their own energy and enjoyment and fulfilment in life and on a cricket field and in cricket, but also have pay some attention to the rest of the team, both in terms of listening and in cooperating. We're going to hear music now by Bach. Are you interested in that combination of the cerebral and the emotional in Bach? I am. I've chosen the Goldberg Variations. It seems to me that's a good example. It's both immensely emotional and varied and sort of ranging from the simplicity of the theme. It's not a completely simple theme, but it's relatively simple, into all sorts of directions and developments and potentialities. Some of them brilliant, some of them sad, some of them otherworldly, and the whole gamut of human emotion. And yet it's based on this almost mathematical arrangement of canons and canons at different intervals and so on, coming every third variation. So it's an extraordinary combination, and how he can do it (laughs) is a miracle. But you've particularly asked to hear a recording probably from around the time you encountered it. It's uh, Ralph Kirkpatrick from 1958. Yes. I didn't encounter it until the 60s, and a friend loved Ralph Kirkpatrick, so that's how I first heard it. I like it on the harpsichord. There's a slight clanging sort of sound, which I quite like in it, as opposed to a more smooth sound. We're going to hear the opening aria. Barclay was talking to Mike Brearley and we're going to have a sort of 
compare and contrast as far as the music is concerned now. After that piece by Bach, here is Alistair MacDonald and to the tune of My Love is Like a Red Red Rose, it's Cecil Francis Alexander's There is a Green Hill Far Away. Outside a city wall Where Jesus Christ was crucified He died to save us all We'll never know Nor can we tell What pains he had to bear But we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there There is no other good enough To pay the price of sin For only he can loose the gates of hell And let us in Oh, so complete his love for us That we should love him too And trust in his redeeming blood And then his work to do might be forgiven He died to make us good That we might join with him in heaven Saved by his precious blood There is a green hill far away Outside a city wall Where Jesus Christ was crucified Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Today, Adrian talks about salvation. Sin, sifting and salvation. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Jesus must have felt such love for this fierce, strong, weak child of a disciple. In the pre-Pentecost phase, Peter was still very much at the mercy of his own complex personality. Presumably he was capable of failing completely. We can only guess, but perhaps the prayers of his master swung the balance when he had to decide whether to stay with the other disciples after the denials and the crucifixion, 
or to go somewhere far away from all the dark memories. What a tragedy if he had taken the latter course and not been with the others when Jesus made his second appearance after rising from the dead. Satan certainly did sift Simon Peter, but the love and prayers of Jesus overcame the power of evil and the chaos in this particular human being. I meet lots of people who fear the outcome of being sifted. It conjures up a very unpleasant picture, the devil with a sneering grin on his face, picking contemptuously through the rubbish of our lives, every now and then pulling out some little thing that we might have thought worthwhile and holding it up to be ridiculed by the hosts of hell. Peter had really believed that he would support his master to the end, but as we've already seen, when it became clear that support would have to be on Jesus' terms, he didn't even have the courage to admit that he knew the sad-eyed Son of God. And that, if we're honest, is the thing many of us fear most. We may not be committing huge scarlet sins, but we are dismally aware of our capacity for sinking to the bottom of our flawed personalities. We can end up feeling too pinched and shabby and mean and trivial in our tedious little wrongdoings to even contemplate contact with God. It's very difficult to recover from this anticlimactic sense of failure. I drank too much again last night. I said I'd pray for someone and I didn't, and then I said I had. I won an argument with my husband by cheating. I spent much of the Bible study dreaming about the girl opposite. I've still got the day before yesterday's list of things that had to be done by yesterday and I haven't done any of them and now I'll have to add on today's list of things that have to be done by tomorrow and I haven't got time to do any of them so the list will get longer and longer and longer as my life goes on and there won't be room for anything in my house except my list. Such dank ordinariness. Now let's be positive. The Bible is a very dramatic book but it's about very ordinary people. Jesus knew when he took on characters like Peter that he didn't have a team of superheroes under his leadership. He knew that the process of teaching and training and preparing them for the coming of the Holy Spirit after his death was going to be a tough, granular business. We Christians are not living in a settle, be-to-meal Bible epic. We are grappling with true reality, and God knows that. Jesus loved Peter, weaknesses and all, and he loves us in the same way. Jesus prayed for Peter that he would survive the process of being sifted. He prays for us in heaven right now, passionately beseeching his Father to look at his death on the cross rather than at our ordinary or extraordinary sins. Pray with me. Everything feels very sort of ordinary sometimes, Jesus. I don't feel as if I could ever fit into something like the book of Revelation with my spindly little sins and my undercooked virtues makes me feel a little tearful to think of you battling away on my behalf as you do thank you jesus amen and that was adrian plass reading from his book the unlocking another song from alistair Macdonald coming up another tune associated with burns this time it's john anderson my joe but alistair sings it to amazing grace The sun that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. 
But now I'm found Was blind But now I see It was grace That taught my heart To fear And grace that fear Relieved How precious Did that grace Appear The hour I first I have already come It was grace that brought me safe thus far And grace will lead me home When we've been there ten thousand years Bright shining as the sun We'll have no less days to sing God's praise Than when we first begun Amazing grace How sweet the sound That saved a wretch like me Was blind, but now I see. Nadir Avsal lost his brother to COVID, and he discusses with Ernie Ray the difficulties of coping with grief when so many other people are in the same situation. Nazir Avzal has been at the front line of the British legal system for decades. He was the lead prosecutor in the Rochdale sex ring case and also prosecuted legal cases around so-called honour killings and modern slavery. In April, coronavirus struck at his family. His elder brother Umar caught the virus and died. My mother was in hospital and uh, she was um, 92 at the time and she was ill. My brother was one of many people that was visiting her at the end of February, beginning of March. Shortly afterwards, he became really ill. Um, He went to hospital a couple of times, but told um, to isolate at home. Uh, He got worse and he passed away on the 8th of April, which is the day uh, where 1,455 people died. It was the day that most people died. Having died at home, there was no space in the morgue, in the hospital morgue. The mosque had a morgue, but the undertaker said he couldn't come for eight hours because they had 14 other bodies to pick up that day. When the undertaker arrived, he said, "Um, I can't come in the house. Here's the body bag. Could you bring him down? And so me and my siblings um, went upstairs, put him in a body bag and carried him down the stairs. We put him on a, um, a trolley outside. My mother, who was attached to an oxygen tank, remained in the house and wanted one last chance to see her son. Um, so we opened up the body bag um, in order for her to see him through the bay window. Uh, and the, everybody was crying. The undertaker was crying. My brother's wish was to be buried in Pakistan uh, with my father, but unfortunately there were no flights and, and the Pakistani government at that time were not allowing bodies to return home for burial. So we found a cemetery in Birmingham uh, 
but we were told that there was only a 30-minute slot available. And of course, in Islam, you're meant to, if you can, bury within 24 hours. I couldn't come to the funeral because we were limited to six people. Uh, and they also, um, the graveyard, told us that there had to be six able-bodied people to be able to lower him into the ground. So now, nine days on now, they had 29 minutes and 59 seconds before they were moved on um, because another family were coming to bury their loved one. But God bless her. My mother, um, who uh, was really ill at the time, um, it broke her heart, and shortly afterwards she passed away too. You've mentioned that, according to Islamic tradition, you should bury a loved one within 24 hours. You weren't able to do that. What did that say to you about the importance of following traditional ritual in the grieving process? Um, strange as it may sound, um, we, didn't, we were just very matter-of-fact about it. You know, we, we're extremely law-abiding and we, we knew that was a law. But you've got to remember, hundreds of people were dying during that period. So, yes, we knew what we wanted to do. We knew what we thought we had to do. But we also recognised that we were not the only family suffering. It was one of those occasions when actually ritual became less important. Uh, one ritual which we did um, continue with was the, was the washing of the body before burial. So me and my brothers... Uh, did wash his body and did have the opportunity to wash his body, but we were doing it completely PPE'd. Um, you know, it was quite an extraordinary occasion. It should have been more emotional than it was, but it literally became much more of a uh, an exercise uh, in hygiene rather than anything else. You, you've mentioned that there were obviously hundreds of others going through the same thing as you were going through. Did that help? Was there a sense of corporate solidarity? We're not in this alone. It absolutely didn't help. Yes, we, I was getting messages from other families who'd lost bereaved ones. People were messaging me and I was messaging them and we were uh, we were providing whatever support we could. But we couldn't, you know, again, one of the other traditions you have is that you all meet together and generally hundreds of people would meet in the same room or same rooms uh, to talk about that individual uh, on their passing. We couldn't do that. But it was a, a real sense of uh, solidarity, I think, um, which made us made it so much easier. But that said, to put it bluntly, I don't think any of us have really started mourning. You mentioned that you've only started the grieving process. What, what elements do you think are important in helping you move on from where you are today? Um, it's strangely, because my mother was able to, we were able to fulfil her wish so that she could be buried next to my father in Pakistan, I feel like we've got some sense of closure in relation to my mother, um, none in relation to my brother. He is buried where he didn't want to be buried, and, and we weren't able to really, uh, I don't know, appreciate him and talk about him and, uh, and celebrate him. We have not had that opportunity as a family, never mind as a community. Uh, all we've been able to do is simply follow protocol, and uh, sadly protocol um, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do enough, really, for us to be able to understand what we've lost and things that we always took for granted we just don't have anymore. That was Nazir Afsal. And I wonder what struck you most about that interview. Jenna? I think what really struck me about the interview was the point made about that actually the rituals could come second to what is the purpose uh, of the rituals. And actually, ultimately, it's about facilitating celebration, connection, giving us per ourselves permission to grieve. I think that's really something that's important to hold on to because I think we don't give ourselves permission to grieve. And I think something COVID has perhaps put pressure on is that 
you know, oh, well, we're all, all in this together and some people have it worse. So really, do I have a right to grieve? Do I have a right to be upset? So just a, just a reminder that actually we need to give ourselves permission to grieve. And, and sometimes we may have the added pressure that I'm a religious or spiritual person and maybe I should be grieving less because I have all of these structures in place. Um, so that was a, a really interesting point about that rituals there is a facility. It's not the be all and end all. I'm Nazir Afsal was talking to Ernie Ray about coping with grief, talking very openly there. Here's Elvis, the two songs, Father Along and By and By. We'll understand. Year after year 